confusion. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Astro seismology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically engineered potatoes, planetoid, planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion, your weekly dose of science news and views. I'm Jackie Hayes, and on today's show, we're going to cram in as much science as you can handle. So hold on to something stable as Patrick Ruby looks at climate change and home renovations. And Ian Wolfe eats coal and saves the coal industry. And if we have any time after all of that, Mark West will look at election fever. But before we can get to any of that, here's Ed Pollitt with the latest science news. Here in Australia, we're familiar with cattle crossings, sheep crossings, even kangaroo and wombat crossings. But have you ever heard of a butterfly crossing? Well, between April 3rd to the 5th, one lane of a freeway in central Taiwan will be closed to traffic to coincide with the peak hours of the annual migration by purple-spotted butterflies. The head of the National Freeway Bureau, Li Ming says that human beings need to coexist with other species, even if they are tiny butterflies. The Butterfly Conservation Society of Taiwan has observed that over 11,000 butterflies per minute flew over the freeway on the morning of the 3rd of April 2005, with at least one million in total passing over the whole day. Further butterfly safety measures undertaken by authorities include safety nets erected along the freeway, and ultraviolet lights, to which butterflies are sensitive, installed underneath, in an attempt to lure the butterflies safely away from traffic. These measures, costing an estimated 1 million Taiwanese dollars, which is about 38,000 Australian dollars, are aimed at reducing the ecological impact of the freeway, which was not taken into consideration when it was built four years ago. Science versus Religion Unfortunately, upon hearing these words... Most people these days will feel their muscles tense and their toes curl in anticipation of a hostile and heated exchange. But there was once a frank and respectful debate between many participants, including Darwin himself, and such notable figures as Asa Gray, the most important botanist of the 19th century and a devout Christian. He was also Darwin's champion in America. My dear Darwin he wrote in 1871, after receiving a copy of Darwin's The Descent of Man. You have such a way of putting things, and write in such a captivating way. Almost thou persuadest me to have been a hairy quadruped of arboreal habits, furnished with a tail and pointed ears. Darwin had earlier written, If I hear from you, I shall probably receive a few stabs from your polished stiletto of a pen. This and hundreds of previously unpublished letters will soon be available to the public as part of the Darwin Correspondence Project, run by the University of Cambridge. The Darwin and Religion site will host the complete texts of letters relevant to the debate between science and religion. Paul White of the Darwin Correspondence Project says, In contrast to much of the current debate... Darwin and his circle of correspondents seem more tolerant and more humble. The website for the project can be found at 
www.lib.cam.ac.uk slash departments slash Darwin. The Greens have proposed phasing out the coal industry. Ian Wolfe explains why burning coal is like burning $100 bills. Coal is too valuable to burn. The method the mining industry used to get rich is dig stuff up, burn it, and dump the waste out the back and forget about it. Forgetting about the waste has caused global warming. It's caused coal to be artificially priced so it's seen as cheap enough to burn. In reality, it's a valuable feedstock for the chemical industry that has a non-renewable supply. There are synthetic dyes, synthetic rubber, synthetic medicines, synthetic pesticides, not to mention thousands of different plastics, all made from coal. Oil is just liquid coal. Out of air, water and coal, we produce a fertilizer for which Americans formerly had to travel thousands of miles. In coal, we have found the colors of the rainbow and the perfumes of nature's sweetest flowers. Coal has been a cheap source of electricity because the cost of the pollution generated in mining it and burning it have been externalized. Externalization is a word from the language of economics, the dismal science. Externalizing a cost means that it's not factored into the cost of production and therefore not included in the price of the commodity. When your profit is solely because you've externalized your costs, then your commodity is not really profitable. Everyone now admits that the carbon dioxide in the air pollution from burning coal is causing global warming that leads to tsunamis, hurricanes, floods and droughts. The sulfuric acid causes soil to become acidic, which kills crops and trees. Acid leaching from coal into rivers and lakes kills fish. Acid sprayed into the air from burning coal burns us with acid rain. The soot blown into the air from burning coal blackens our lungs, clogs up our hearts and strokes our brains. The bad news for the mining companies is that we can no longer afford to allow the cost of pollution to be subsidised this way. Coal will have to be mined in a way that doesn't allow sulfuric acid into the water and soil, and it must only be consumed in a way that doesn't generate carbon dioxide, soot, and more sulfuric acid. Chemistry is creating new and more comfortable homes, giving you finer and yet vastly cheaper motor cars, better clothes, purer food, and sounder health. Unfortunately, the clean coal technology, pushed by the Australian and American governments, is fake. They're basing their whole rescue plan for global warming on a technology that will take the carbon dioxide pollution and store it in a barrel at the back, or underground, where it will inevitably bubble back up to the surface after it's forgotten. It's called carbon sequestration. This does nothing to stop soot or acid, and so far, nobody has demonstrated that it can work. Fortunately... Solar power generating technology has advanced to the point where solar power is now as cheap as coal-fired power plants have been. With solar power, there are no fuel costs, ever. Solar systems are building the world's biggest photovoltaic solar power plant in Australia's northwest Victoria. The pilot plant generates 154 megawatts of power and costs $420 million to build. It will power 45,000 homes. The power plant covers six hectares. Mirrors aim sunlight onto panels that convert the light directly into electricity. The light will be concentrated 500 times by magnifying mirrors. These solar cells convert 35% of the light into power, 
and they're able to withstand temperatures that would melt steel. The Hazelwood Brown coal-fired power station generates 1600 megawatts to provide a quarter of Victoria's baseload energy. To replace it with a new coal power station will cost $4.8 billion. By comparison, 10 of the photovoltaic solar power plants would generate the same power for $4.2 billion. The coal-fired power plant has the disadvantage of needing $600 million of coal fuel every year. That's $4.8 billion for coal versus $4.2 billion for solar if you don't count the costs of pollution and fuel. Those who prefer to dig stuff up, burn it and sling the waste out the back justly complain that photovoltaic solar power stations don't generate power at night. When the sun is down, how could solar power plants light up the night? The solution is a solar thermal power plant. When you concentrate the sun to make really hot stuff, it stays hot overnight and keeps generating power all the way to sunrise. The plan is for the tower to store excess heat in water tubing under the tower and use it to heat the air overnight. Solar thermal power plants operate by using the heat from sunlight. In the solar tower, heated air blows in an updraft, the top of a giant chimney-like tower to spin a turbine. The turbine generates electricity using the familiar conductors moving past magnets used in coal-fired power plants. Enviromission is building a solar thermal tower not far away from the photovoltaic power plant, but on the New South Wales side of the border. The pilot project will generate 200 megawatts for a similar cost. Solar Heat and Power are working on a project to add sun power to the coal-fired Liddell power station in New South Wales. They use Fresnel reflectors to focus the sun to heat water into steam, which is then directed through the old power station to supplement the steam generated by heating water with coal. By cleverly using flat, cheap, compact Fresnel reflectors instead of curved glass parabolic mirrors, they've reduced the biggest cost in a solar power plant. You might be familiar with Fresnel lenses from children's pocket magnifying glasses. Instead of a curved lens, you have a flat plastic surface with lines pressed into it. The lines bend the light through diffraction to magnify the light instead of refracting it through a big round glass lens. In the same way, the Fresnel reflectors used in the Liddell power plant use flat flexible plastic with lines pressed into the surface that diffract the light to concentrate it. Instead of using curved parabolic mirrors made of metal and glass, the flat plastic is much cheaper and easier to manoeuvre. At present, the power station is a hybrid with solar steam adding a small amount of power to the power generated by coal. The solar power generated is about to go up from 7 megawatts to 38 megawatts. The coal generates 2,000 megawatts. Like the solar tower, Liddell Station stores excess heat underground for making steam to turn the turbines at night. Solar heat and power will be increasing the percentage of power that comes from the sun as funds become available. Eventually, it could be 100%. This means that other coal-fired power plants around the world could be retrofitted with solar collectors. The Greens are campaigning to replace all the coal-fired power plants with solar power plants in Australia. That's not a bad idea. They plan to phase out the coal industry in Australia altogether. The Greens are wrong about this, and here's why. This part of their plan has upset the mining industry and their friends in the government and put them against all solar power. They rightly point out that their private wealth from digging up coal, burning it and slinging the waste out the back contributes to the economy. They also employ miners. They're wrong that this is the only way for them to stay rich, and they're wrong that the miners won't be able to find safer jobs doing something else. However, as long as they don't burn coal and they develop a non-polluting way of mining it, 
there's no reason for them to stop digging it up as a feedstock for industry. From cotton, sour milk, formaldehyde and carbolic acid all scrambled together in the laboratory come noiseless gears, costume jewelry, fountain pens, billiard balls, telephone parts, and many other plastics of beauty and utility. There's hundreds of things that can be made from coal, from plastics and dyes to clothing, optic fibres. Face cream for the ladies, special tasteless waxes for certain kinds of candies, wax for sealing letters, soap, fertilizers for the farmers, coke, ink, streets and highways. We have discovered how to manufacture rubber from coal, limestone, salt and water. Vinegar from coke and limestone. Coal also fits nicely in Christmas stockings. Coal is a limited resource that will run out, so whoever has a monopoly will be able to make a fortune. The Aladdin's lamp, which can produce an endless variety of valuable products. When it runs out, we'll have to synthesise these things from organic waste, such as sewage and farm waste. If we tried to grow them on plantations, we'd run the risk of mowing down rainforests in the third world. This has started to happen from the initiative to replace burning oil products in cars and throwing the waste out the back with burning ethanol in cars and throwing the waste out the back. Burning coal is like burning $100 bills. There'll be room for a coal industry for as long as the coal lasts, and they're willing to dig it up in a safe way. So the mining companies can breathe easy, and so can the rest of us. And yummy coal food for dinner on a coal plate. There you go. The coal industry saved by Ian Wolfe. so hot that everything on it is a gas. Aluminum, copper, iron, and many others. The sun is blind. If the sun were hollow, a million Earths would fit inside. And yet, it is only a middle-sized star. smashing machine. The heat and light of the sun are caused by the nuclear reactions between hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, and helium. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. 
Australian homeowners and renovators are increasingly considering climate change and environmental design as important factors in the design choices they make for their homes. Climate change has effects on health issues in the home, such as natural light, fresh air, water and temperature. New design innovations are already responding to many of these issues. Some of these include prefabricated rainwater tanks called water walls, which store water as well as provide thermal control, heat purging roofs and grey water treatment plants. Diffusion's Patrick Ruby spoke to Angus Kell, a manager at ArchiCentre, the building advisory service for the Royal Institute of Architects, and asked what about the advice it provides to home buyers and renovators. We're the largest provider of pre-purchase house and design reports throughout Australia. Uh, So the sort of work that we do is pre-purchase inspections, pest inspections, renovation reports, new home reports, architect's advice, owner-builder reports. So... We cover that broad spectrum of uh, reporting and information service to the public. You've stated that customers are interested in delivering environmentally friendly, water-efficient and energy-efficient outcomes on their property these days. Uh, one such innovation is a prefabricated water wall or water fence. How does this work? Yeah, look, this is a sort of new technology that we're uh, looking to push into the, uh, into the market. And the way it would work is, you know, let's, let's say uh, water fences would be Instead of using a traditional fence along the property line that you have now, what we could do is replace that with a fence and fill it with water. So it would be maybe a a 1.8 metres high, which is a standard height fence, and say 750 millimetres wide, and it would actually act as a water tank, but be a fence as well. And as well as that, you could use a water wall. Now, a water wall is something you'd integrate into the design of the house. Now, again, it would be a storage capacity for water, but we would also use it for... Um, for separating the house from areas such as noise or high thermal activity. So it could actually become not only a storage device, but valuable to the, the climatic conditions of the house, you know, an, added, an added bonus to the house. So you've mentioned that it can be used as a water store and a thermal control. Does this mean that, that the wall has a connection to a water reservoir in the house for water use, or how, how, how does this work? Well, the wall would be a, a water reservoir. What we'd do is instead of using your standard wall, so let's say it might be a, uh, a brick wall or a timber wall, it would actually form part of the wall itself. And water being a good thermal, uh, a, a good insulator, would actually give you that, that uh, separation of hot and cold. So if it's hot outside, it would cool the, you maintain the, the cooler temperatures inside. And also if you're on a busy road, it could actually separate noise from the inside of the house. So it's a very, it's a lifestyle option and uh, we consider this to be somewhere where we could definitely uh, move towards the future. Um, you've already stated that the advantages of having water walls or fences is to provide quiet or cool spaces along with providing water uh, reservoirs. What are the other advantages of having water walls or fences in terms of the value of your property? Well, it's interesting that polls taken by Archicenter from our customers over the last year or so have uh, indicated that 75% of our customers would opt opt for energy-saving devices and 80% would opt for water tanks. So if you extrapolate that, what we believe is that people are are moving away from the traditional items such as bathroom and kitchen renovations to more energy-saving devices such as water tanks, solar-hot water heaters, water walls and this sort of thing. So... What we, look, what we believe is that people can actually benefit significantly from the value-added component of such a, a water wall or a water fence to their house.
Uh, what would be the cost of adding water walls to a house? Well, a water fence, you would consider that that would be similar to the water tanks that you're using now. So it wouldn't have a great difference. But the, the issue with a water fence is that you get only the benefit of water storage. You wouldn't have those added benefits of, of providing a cool space or a quiet space within your house. The water wall technology is sort of unproven as yet, so we really can't determine the price to date. But it's something that we'd like to move forward on and develop into the future. Would you be able to provide advice to your customers on when it is good to install and when it is not good to install such a feature? Oh, definitely. As part of our pre-purchase inspection or our architect's advice, we could actually uh, visit people's properties and give them an on-site uh, study as to whether it may be applicable to them. Generally, with all this uh, water, water technology, particularly the water wall, it's often cheaper to install that when you're building rather than try and retrofit it at a later date. So we would really consider that something that you'd plan into either the construction of a new house or the renovation of an older house. You've also mentioned in your press release that there are other new innovations, um, such as grey water treatment plants for making water for garden use. How would this work? Well, grey water is tapping the water that's used already through the house that doesn't have to be of potable quality, that is drinkable quality. So for instance, the water that comes out of areas like your laundry tub, that can actually be used for other areas within the house, such as flushing toilets, watering the garden, washing the car, those sort of external ideas. Could there ever be a situation where grey water would be able to be used back in the house for consumption? Look, at this stage, we don't really have that technology, and on an individual basis, that would be very expensive. So I don't think so. However, from saving it in the areas that we've uh, identified, you could provide substantial savings, potentially 20% of your water saving. Sounds great. What are some of the other innovations that are being uh, produced at the moment? Look, other innovations that you should definitely look at when planning a house are energy-saving light fittings, solar hot water heaters. We're also advocating the use of potentially a solar-powered air conditioning unit. Of course, this needs further development. We'd always suggest that all houses are designed uh, using pr sound energy-saving principles. Installing uh, energy-saving devices could, for some families, be quite a high upfront investment to make. How long would families have to wait before they would get a return on their investment for when they wanted to sell their properties? Of course, it relates specifically to the device that you're using, but in many cases, items such as a light fitting, an energy-saving light fitting, may be more expensive now. So we may be talking of payback period of, say, two or three years. But in the long term, when more people implement these ideas, the cost of energy-saving light bulbs will come down and down and down. And that's really where we should push as a community. That was Angus Kell, the New South Wales and ACT State Manager for ArcuCentre, speaking to Diffusion's Patrick Ruby. And now for my favourite part of Diffusion, a bit where we all sit around and speak rubbish about the latest news. Today it will be hosted by Mark West, and on the panel we have Patrick Ruby, Ian Wolfe, Ed Pollitt and myself, 
Jackie Hayes. Well, we've just finished the New South Wales election and wasn't that an absolute joy? Wasn't that the most exciting statistical event of the last year? And I wandered in, I don't know what I look like, but it's a fair gauge of what people think of you by the political parties that give you their how to vote cards. I got the Shooters Party, <laughs> the Greens and the Nationals, I think. You weren't so, wearing your gun, were you? <laughs> so apart from the sausage sandwiches and all that sort of thing, which are usually the highlights of the election for me, it was a rather resounding victory. So I kind of thought it'd be interesting to have a chat about some of the narrow elections and the biggest election victories that have happened over the years. Well, the largest one that's in the Guinness Book of Records is Gayatra Devi's victory in Jaipur in India back in the 1960s. She won by 175,000 votes, which is apparently a world record. But not long afterwards, Indira Gandhi, when she finally got into power, she put her into jail for tax evasion. It wasn't when you that say popular. when you say largest margin, is that affected by the fact that it's India and there's a billion people voting? Like, shouldn't it be on percentage or something? Look, I just read the Guinness Book of Records. I don't know. <laughs> well, the narrowest one on percentage, the New Hampshire uh, senatorial election in 1974 was won by two votes out of a total votes cast of around 200,000, which is 0.001%. And the largest national election is the Italian general election in 2006, when there were 38 million votes cast, and the winning margin was only 25,000, which is 0.066%. So there's some rather tight ones. But we can't talk about narrow and controversial elections without talking about the 2000 presidential election. They used computer voting for the first time in the US, and it was thoroughly hacked. Oh, yeah? There's a documentary called Hacking Democracy, where they show how all the machines could be faked, and then the evidence where people who were chasing the story, how they found that lots of them were faked, and then they demonstrated how it could be faked and what probably happened. Really? Yes. I did not know this. Speaking of uh, fake votes, I was considering in the last election the donkey vote. It's extremely difficult to get a live animal into uh, <laughs> a polling booth uh, quietly. They have rights. Well, voting. Tasmania, I guess. Which donkey um, do you vote for? Well, in that Florida election, the official margin, whether it was hacked or not, was uh, 537 out of 6 million votes, which is 0.009%. So that's rather tight. The largest victory margin in Australia was in 1975. In that election where, after Whitlam was dismissed, everybody might have thought that was a terrible thing, but the largest federal election victory was after that, when Malcolm Fraser got in and beat the dismissed Whitlam government. So whatever you think about him being dismissed, people at the time absolutely smashed him in the polls. And that was Mark West proving that statistics are relevant to everything. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of Diffusion. If you would like any more information about what you've heard here today, please email us. Our address is diffusion at 2ser.com. Again, that's diffusion at 2ser.com. You can also visit our website, diffusionradio.com. Diffusion was recorded up in the clouds of the 2SER studios in Sydney and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. You've been listening to the blissful voices of Ian Wolfe, Mark West, Patrick Ruby and Ed Pollitt. Diffusion was produced by Ian Wolfe with technical assistance from the lovely Tilly Berlin. I'm Jackie Hayes. Join us next week for more sciencey, sciencey goodness on Diffusion. Diffusion.